This is a talk by Joel titled "Listening to the Stones." Talk number one: Learning to Listen. Recorded October 2011 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. All right. The theme of this retreat is listening to the stones, and one of the things you'll need to do between now and Sunday morning is to pick out a stone, find a stone. It should be something that fits easily into the palm of your hand. You should clean it off so you can carry it around, you can handle it, and you won't feel like you're getting dirty and everything. And you don't want to pick a big herky stone because you are going to be carrying around a lot. So if you got some big brick, you know that's going to be uncomfortable. And you don't want some teeny weeny little beany stone because we are going to be using it. You might have to put it on the floor to contemplate its visual appearance.、Uh, we, we'll be tapping it to hear、uh, what sort of sounds it makes and stuff like that. So if it's some little tiny little pebble, you won't be able to do that stuff. So pick the right size stone. And this stone is going to be your guru for the rest of the retreat, your teacher. And everything we do practically is going to be related to finding out what this stone has to teach us. So, the great Christian mystic Meister Eckhart writes: All created things are God's speech. The being of a stone speaks and manifests the same way as my mouth about God. So, what does this mean? How does a stone speak about God? Now, whenever I used to read a passage like this, and still, if I don't understand the passage, I want to try it out. Even if it sounds silly, I want to see in practice what they're talking about. So I brought my stone. You don't have to have one until tomorrow morning, but I got my stone, and I'm going to do an experiment here. He says this stone speaks just the way my mouth. So here we go. My mouth is going to speak. God. Here's the stone. I don't hear it speaking God. I put it up to my ear. Maybe it's speaking very quiet. When you get your stone, you can try this experiment too. Nope, I still don't hear it speaking God. So, what could we conclude from that? Well, maybe Meister Eckhart is just being poetic. You know, sometimes these mystics get carried away in their bliss and stuff, and he's just being poetic. But it's not just Meister Eckhart who says things like this. Listen to the great Hindu. Lali Shwari. Here's what she says: "O Lali, with right knowledge, open your ears and hear how the trees sway to Om Namah Shivaya, how the wind says Om Namah Shivaya as it blows, how water as it flows with the sound of Namah Shivaya. The entire universe is singing the name of Shiva. O Lali." Pay a little attention. So she's saying the same thing as Maestrekar, right? She was a Hindu name for God, and she's saying the entire universe is speaking the name of God. Here's the Tibetan master Dilgo Kinsey. Now, of course, in the Tibetan tradition, they don't have a term like God, but they still have terms for the ultimate reality. And one of the terms, the technical term, is Unborn Dharmakaya. So I plant that in your mind as we read this. The sounds of the wind and running rivers, the crackling of fire, the cries of animals, the songs of birds, human voices—all the sounds of the universe are the vibrations of mantra, the self-arisen sound of Dharma, the resonance of the unborn Dharmakaya. So all the sounds in the universe, including the human voice, is the sound of the Dharmakaya, the mantra of the Dharmakaya. And here's what the Quran says: There is nothing that does not glorify Allah in praise, but you do not understand their glorification. 
So he's saying the same thing. Everything around here is glorifying Allah. You uh, walk down that path, you see the ferns, they're glorifying Allah. The trees are glorifying Allah. And not just the beautiful things of nature. We come in here and the wood and the walls and the lights, they're all glorifying God. When you go use the outhouse there, you're glorifying God. You don't know it, you don't understand what they say, as the Quran says, but that's what's going on. Here's the great Kabbalist scholar Gershom Sholem, and he sums up the Kabbalist attitude towards creation. All creation is, from the point of view of God, nothing but an expression of his hidden self that begins and ends by giving itself a name. All that lives is an expression of God's language. Okay. So now we have this tremendous intersubjective agreement from these mystics from different times, different places, different cultures, all of which are confirming what Meister Eckhart said. Everything is speaking of God just like my mouth when I say God. Or if I want to praise God and say glory be to God, well, I'm not doing anything different than everything else in the universe is doing. So, The question then is, why don't we hear this sacred language of things? I'm listening again to the stone. I do not hear the sacred language of the stone. So what's wrong with me? When you start studying mysticism, the tendency is to say, oh, those crazy mystics, you know, they spent too much time fasting in the desert. They they got a little uh, screwed up in the head or something like that. But once we begin to suspect maybe they have something to tell us, then we have to turn around and ask the question, why don't I see it? Why don't I get it? Why don't I hear it? And the short answer is, we're not listening. We're not really listening. We think we're listening. Just because I picked this stone up and I put it to my ear doesn't mean I'm really listening. Because what I'm really listening to is not the stone or anything else. I'm listening to the thoughts in my head. And I'll show you what I mean very simply. Uh, This is a stone, right? Okay. So, Hiromi, what is this in Japanese? What? Ishi. Ishi? Did I get that pretty close? Ishi, okay. Anybody here speak Spanish? Knows what this is in Spanish? Yes, what? Piedra. Piedra. Okay. How about any other languages someone speaks? Stein. Stein. German? Okay. So, this isn't a stone, and it's not a Piedra, and it's not an Ichi, and it's not a Stein. It's not any of those things. Those are thoughts in our head. That's what we're listening to. It's coming between us and the naked object, and even objects saying too much. So if we're listening to what the stone has to say, it means we're listening to what our thoughts have to say. But we don't want to listen to what our thoughts have to say. We want to learn to be able to listen to the phenomena arising. Their nature, not what we superimpose upon them, not what we think about them, They are going to teach us, and particularly the stone is going to represent all the phenomena. We're going to focus on one, primarily. What does this have to teach us? Not our minds. So, the first thing we have to do is learn to ignore our minds, to ignore our thoughts, to ignore our stories, to ignore our dramas. Instead of being wrapped up and listening to them, we have to free our attention from them so we can direct it to the cosmos. And all traditions agree that the best way to do this is, for most people, it's always got to say for most people, is through a practice of meditation. So before we actually start trying to listen to our teacher, we're going to spend the day practicing meditation. And we're going to start from the beginning and review a meditation practice 
that'll take us from concentration through choiceless awareness and finally spacious awareness so we can prepare ourselves to be able to receive the teachings that stones and the rest of the cosmos are giving us all the time. So, let's dig in. Meditation, like any spiritual practice, requires the application of four principles. Attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender. We have to start by paying attention. And we're going to start in meditation by paying attention to our meditation object. And most of you have the breath as a meditation object, so that's what you're going to start paying attention to. Paying attention to the breath. And then we need a commitment to continue to pay attention to the breath even when the meditation gets boring and we get restless and all that stuff. Nope, we are still going to continue with our practice. And then we need to practice detachment from all the distractions that are going to try to take us away from paying attention to our breath. And most importantly, our thoughts. Because our thoughts and our stories that the thoughts spin are going to be very seductive. So we're going to just detach from them. And detachment here means, I'm going to say this a number of times, I can't say it enough actually, Detachment means, in a spiritual context, simply not grasping and not pushing away. It does not mean suppression. It just means not grasping and not pushing away. So, we allow thoughts to arise, and in fact you can't, by an act of volition, stop them anyway. But we don't grasp them, which means we don't get fascinated with them and then generate more thoughts based on what a particular thought is, and we don't try to push them away. We, they come and we don't get all upset and, and try to hold them down or, or whatever. We just let thoughts do what they do. They arise and they pass away. And then finally, surrender is surrender to the practice. At a certain point, when we really get into the practice, then we let go of our effort to manipulate the practice. We let the practice manipulate us. We let the practice do us. And my favorite way of putting this, this comes from the Zen tradition, and they talk about the wheel of Dharma, the wheel of the Buddha's teachings and practices, and they say in the beginning, you turn Dharma. You have to make an effort to get into the practice. But once you do that, Dharma turns you. You surrender to the practice, and the practice shows you what it's going to show you, rather than you're trying always to direct the practice to come up with some result that you want. So you're open to what the practice has to show you. Then meditation is three stages. Simple beginning meditation anyway. First is concentration. And concentration leads to stability. Where attention settles down, it's stable, it's not so distracted. If it gets distracted, it can right itself. You know, it's like one of those schmoos. You knock it over and it comes back. And you knock it this way and it comes back on its own. And then once we have some stable attention, we can use that to contemplate any aspect of reality we want. And it's through the contemplation of some aspect of reality that we begin to get insights into phenomena's true nature, like a stone. So once we have a stable attention, once we can contemplate the stone, that is, directly experience the stone, nakedly experience the stone, without the filter of thought, then the stone can start to reveal to us its true nature. So, this stability that we're trying to develop in the Tibetan tradition, or in, I should say in the Buddhist tradition in general, is called shamatha, that's a Sanskrit term, and it's usually translated as calm abiding, or sometimes tranquil abiding, and here's what the Tibetan master, Lati Rinpoche, uh, here's how he describes it. Calm abiding is a state in which one sets one's mind on an object of observation. Setting the mind on an object is likened to tying an elephant to a post. The rope symbolizes mindfulness. The post symbolizes the object of observation. The elephant symbolizes one's mind. 
So the idea is, through this concentration practice, we are tying our mind to the object. And we're keeping our mind on the object. In most of your cases, that's the breath. So, how does the actual practice work? The first thing we got to do is get into a comfortable posture. A comfortable but alert posture. And that means we sit upright. We're not slumped down because that'll tend to induce sleep. But we also don't want to be rigid. The body should be very relaxed. This is very important. So you're upright, you're alert, but you're also extremely relaxed. Then you find some place to put your hands in your lap, on your thighs, palms up, palms down. It doesn't really matter. But some place where your hands won't be fidgeting. So you find a comfortable posture for yourself, you find a comfortable place to put your hands, and then you should always use the same posture. So you don't have to think about it every time you sit down. It becomes your meditation posture. And then for this kind of meditation, we want to keep the eyes open. They can be just slightly open, and the eyes should again be very relaxed. We're not staring at anything, but slightly open, and you can let the gaze fall someplace comfortably in front of you. And it's just like setting your hands so they don't fidget. You're just setting your gaze so it's not looking all over the place. And then for this meditation, if you're using your breath, you don't try to control your breath. You let the breath come and go naturally. It comes in, it turns around, it goes out, it turns around, it comes in. If it wants to go fast, let it go fast. If it wants to slow down, let it slow down. There are meditations where you do try to control breath because you're controlling the energy associated with breath, but not in this kind of meditation. You're simply watching the breath. You're simply observing. You can think of it as riding the breath with attention, like a surfboard rider rides the waves. So attention is on the breath, and the breath carries attention. And after a while, you want to start narrowing the focus of your attention to some particular point where the breath passes through the body. You want to develop single-pointed concentration. And the three classic points are in the abdomen, the rise and fall of the abdomen, and you're looking for an actual sensation. The breath is an abstract term. When we use breath, we mean a little set of sensations. So the sensation of the rising and falling of the abdomen, or how the breath passes through the heart area and the chest, Some people are quite sensitive to that, others aren't so. Or how the breath passes in and out of the nostrils. You can feel it, the sensations in the nostrils as it passes in and out. So after you practice just the full breath for a while, then you can narrow the focus even more and you you find that single-pointedness. And then you want to watch for three major obstacles or faults. Uh, that plague meditators. One is forgetting the object. And that essentially means you sit down here, you're going to meditate, and you just forget to meditate at all. I mean, your mind is way off someplace else, you're not meditating. And halfway through the round, you suddenly wake up and you say, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be here meditating, what am I doing? So if this happens to you a lot, uh, then you really should pause uh, and start to consider your motivation for practice. Why are you practicing? So you might consider the shortness of human life, the preciousness of human life. You might consider that you have an opportunity here to discover truth, to discover love, to discover bliss. Any of those big spiritual motivations, you might just think about the fact that you're up here wasting money if you're not meditating. You could, you know, go to a movie or something. You could go to a lot of movies for the price to come up here. So anyway, that's a, a very valuable thing to do if you're really finding you just can't meditate at all. Sit down and think about why are you here. Then, uh, if you are meditating, then there are two faults that have to do with the quality of the meditation. And that is excitement and laxity. Excitement is when the mind is generating powerful, vivid, compulsive thoughts and can't stop. You're thinking about 
redecorating your house and your mind is cranking away. Should I do the bathroom in the tile or should I use wallpaper? Da, 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 da. And the quality of that is if somebody asks you, you know, what are you thinking about? You know exactly what you're thinking about. You're quite alert. But the trouble is your alertness, your attention isn't on your breath. It's on some train of thought. And the cause of that, and it's counterintuitive for most people, the cause of that is you're making too much effort. Because when we find this happening, our tendency is to make more effort to keep that attention focused on the breath or the object of meditation. But actually what's causing this generation of these powerful compulsive thoughts is too much effort. So if you find this is happening, you want to back off. Relax the effort a little bit. That's the antidote to excitement. The other fault is laxity. And laxity is when, okay, you've got the meditation object, you're aware of the meditation object, it's not like you've forgotten it completely. It's there, and you're aware of the breathing going on, but your mind's drifting around a little bit. And it's not wrapped up in powerful compulsive thoughts. There are thoughts there, but they are, you know, drifting in and out, and uh, you're kind of falling towards a kind of a stupor state. And this is the kind of state where somebody asks you, you know, what are you thinking about? You go, huh? Oh, I don't know. You know? Daydreaming, spaced out kind of condition. So the problem with there is you're not putting enough effort in. You have to make a little bit more of an effort. You have to try a little harder. The fault of laxity is the worst fault. The problem with laxity is two things. First of all, it's harder to detect. It can feel like this might become abiding because there is some stability. You're constantly aware of the breath and maybe in the background somewhere, but you have that awareness and you're very relaxed. And I'm sure this is great if you have high blood pressure, for instance. I'm sure it has a lot of health benefits. But spiritually, it's not worth anything because there's no... Clarity, there's no alertness, there's no brightness in the mind. It's dull kind of mind. So there's no opportunity for insight. So true calm abiding has the stability, but it also has the sense of clarity, of alertness, of brightness. Uh, one Tibetan master described it it's as though you feel like you could count the atoms in a wall if you're facing a wall. You have that sense of presence. So be aware of that. So if you fall into laxity, put a little more effort in. The standard metaphor for this is tuning a guitar string. If the guitar string is too tight, that's, there's too much excitement, then the note is sharp. If it's too loose, which is the metaphor for laxity, it's flat, and you have to play with it, tune it up a little bit, let it drop back, make a little more effort, a little less effort, and so forth. Now, in order to detect these faults, we have to use what's called introspection. And that is occasionally, as we're meditating, we take a piece of our attention and we turn it back and check out what we're doing. So you're sitting there and everything seems to be going okay, but you turn the introspection on and you say, okay, is there too much excitement here or is it too lax? And then you apply the antidote. I say and I stress occasionally you do this. If you're doing it all the time, you're going to wreck your meditation. So just every once in a while, and especially if something doesn't feel quite right, you're sitting there meditating, but yeah, use a little introspection. Identify the fault, apply the antidote, and you're on your way. So, we're going to try one round of this now, but first uh, I want to know if there are any uh, questions about the meditation instruction here. Okay, let's get into our posture and let's try one round of concentration. Okay, everybody ready? Here we go.
If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. So, once we have developed such a stable and clear attention, then we can uh, use that, we can direct that to, as I said, various phenomena or aspects of phenomena or aspects of our experience, and we can observe without the filter of thought intervening. So, what does this mean? It means, for instance, that there's the visual phenomena appearing in awareness, and then there's the thought, oh, this is a stone. And they are different. We often confuse them. There's a sound in the night, woo-woo, and then there's a thought, oh, that's a train. There may be a visual appearance of a Buddha, where is it, back here, and then there's the thought, oh, that's the Buddha. So thought may still be present, and there may even be thoughts about what we're observing. But we are not focused on the thoughts, we're not interested in the thoughts, we're not wrapped up in the thoughts. We are open to a direct, non-conceptual experience. It might later get conceptualized, we might think up words to describe it, but in the moment, it is a non-conceptual experience. So to do this, we want to cultivate what's called choiceless awareness. It's a meditative practice in which we learn to distinguish between our thoughts about phenomena and the phenomena themselves. So, when we're engaging in concentration practice, Attention is like a theater light that's narrowed down to a spotlight that's focused on some one object on the stage. Let's say someone delivering a uh, monologue. And then in choiceless awareness, we expand it into a floodlight. And we spread attention out in larger and larger areas of awareness until the awareness encompasses the whole stage. Now, there might be lots of things moving around on the stage. There might be somebody giving a monologue and, I don't know, dancers uh, dancing out in the background. That's fine. It doesn't bother our awareness. Our awareness stays still, no matter what's moving around within it. So, choiceless awareness just grows out of concentration practice. It's not really a different meditation. We talk about it as a different meditation, but it's not like we're stop doing one activity and start doing another activity. We transition into choiceless awareness simply by opening our attention up wider and wider, taking in more and more kinds of phenomena. Until ultimately, it's called choiceless awareness because we're not choosing to focus on any particular phenomena. So it's choiceless awareness. <clears throat> so, in order to help us get the hang of this, so to speak, we divide phenomena up into a very simple scheme as opposed to the very complex way our language divides phenomena up, and we simply identify phenomena by the field in which it arises. And we have the five normal sense fields plus the mental field. 
So there's the field of bodily sensations, you know, little itches and things in the body. There's the sound field. There's the taste field and the smell field. And we're not going to pay too much attention to them here in this room because there aren't that many tastes and smells arising. But each of them is a separate field. So during mealtimes, it's uh, actually very interesting to observe phenomena in those fields. Then there's the sight field, which is everything arising in our visual field. That's the five sensory fields. And then there's the mental field. And that includes not just our formal thoughts, but images, memories, uh, anticipations, anything that really doesn't appear in the other fields. And there's one category in the English language that sort of partakes of both, that has one foot in both worlds, the sensory world and the mental world, and that's emotions. But for our purposes here, if an emotion has a primarily sensual quality, you know, like uh, you get angry and you can feel it in your gut, well, then you just count that as a bodily sensation. If it has a primarily mental quality, it's a mood that clouds your whole perception, then you can think of that as a mental phenomenon. And don't spend a lot of time trying to decide. It's not that crucial. The point of doing this is so you don't get wrapped up in thoughts about what you're experiencing. You just identify it, and then you don't need to think about it anymore. So, whatever phenomena arises... We identify and label it according to the field. So the train whistle goes by. Woo, woo, okay. Sound. That's the identification we make. Now, a thought may come and say, oh, that's a train whistle. Thought. So we're already distinguishing here between the naked phenomena and then the thoughts about the phenomena. Now, let me add one thing here. Identify and label the most prominent phenomena that appear in consciousness. Don't try to identify and label everything that's appearing. You'll go crazy. You won't be able to do it. There'll be phenomena rising all the time. So you just sit there and, okay, something quite prominent is in the center of your attention. There's someone raising their hand. Okay. Sight. Woo-woo. Sound. Sound. You find your own pace in doing this, but don't get carried away trying to label everything. Just the most prominent phenomena that present themselves. Okay. In concentration practice, anything that takes your attention away from your meditation object is a distraction. In choiceless awareness, there are no distractions except one. And that is, if you get caught up in a train of thought, in a story, a drama, most of your attention is focused in that drama, that story. That, then, is the distraction. A single thought or a stray thought here and there and so forth, those aren't distractions. But when you're absorbed in a full-blown drama, you're distracted. And if that happens, you notice it, and you can either try to go directly back to the choiceless awareness, if you're skillful. If not, drop the whole thing, go back to your concentration practice, do a few minutes of that, and then gradually expand your attention through the various fields and come back to the total choiceless awareness. So, we're going to do a guided meditation for the first round of Choiceless Awareness. I'm going to guide you through it. And then in the second round and the rest of the afternoon, you're going to be on your own. Okay? Here we go.
So we're going to begin with a couple of minutes of concentration. And don't forget to use introspection to occasionally check for laxity or excitement. Now expand your attention from focusing exclusively on the breath to encompass the whole field of bodily sensation. Now expand attention to include not only bodily sensations, but the sound field. And identify and label any phenomena arising in the bodily sensation field or the sound field. Expand attention to include bodily sensations, sounds, and whatever smells or tastes are present. Identify and label whatever phenomena arise according to the field in which they arise.
Now expand attention to include bodily sensations, sounds, smells, tastes, and the sight field. And identify and label whatever phenomena arise in these five sensory fields according to the field in which it arises. Now allow attention to expand to include the five sensory fields and the sixth mental field. Identify and label whatever sensory phenomena arise or whatever mental phenomena arise, thoughts, memories, images, etc., according to the field in which they arise. Now allow attention to expand evenly throughout the total field of consciousness awareness. And whatever phenomena arise in any of the six fields, identify and label it accordingly. If you get caught up in a train of thought, either go directly back to choiceless awareness, or if you find that difficult, go back to the breath and let attention expand through all the fields of consciousness as before.
we can refine choiceless awareness by making four adjustments to our practice and that will transform our practice into spacious awareness. Now again, this is not some totally different sort of practice. It's not a, a quantum leap to some other kind of state or anything like that. We're just using slightly different terminology to reflect these kinds of changes we're making in our practice. So what are these four adjustments? Well, the first one is drop the labeling. The purpose of the labeling is to cut through this running commentary that the mind makes categorizing everything that appears in terms of our linguistic categories, which then lead to stories about the phenomena, theories about the phenomena, all that. So if we simplify it all and we just label according to the field in which the phenomena appear, it gives the mind something to do, but it also cuts through that complicated organization of our experience. It also, and very importantly, should make clear the difference between the naked phenomena and the thoughts about the phenomena. Through the process of labeling, you should start to be able to see that directly. But at a certain point, as helpful as labeling is, labeling itself becomes a distraction. It's too much activity. It's too gross. And then the mind has to uh, be too active. So at the point where we can start to experience the various phenomena directly, nakedly, and recognize the difference between the phenomena and the thoughts that come about the phenomena, and recognize that thought itself is just another phenomena arising in consciousness, at that point we can just drop the labeling. So this is the first adjustment we make. We simply drop the labeling and we go on with our practice as we've been doing. Second, we allow thoughts to self-liberate. Up until now, especially in the concentration practice, we've been ignoring thought and then we've been observing thought in the choiceless awareness. But now this is something a little bit more subtle. And it's not actually something that we do here. It's something that we recognize about the nature of thought itself. Thoughts are very fleeting. Each individual thought is very fleeting. We get the impression that they're much more solid and that they hang around a long time because one follows the other in the form of some sort of coherent story. But we don't realize that the story itself is made up of one thought arises and then it vanishes. And the next thought arises and then it vanishes. In many traditions, they compare this to writing on water or drawing pictures on water. And if you take a stick and try to draw uh, you know, a face on water, you won't even succeed in drawing the whole face. It'll be dissolving as you're drawing it. And thoughts are the same way. So the trick is we don't have to do anything about thoughts. And here we've been struggling with thoughts and what to do about thoughts and so forth. But in essence, we don't have to do a thing. We just don't encourage them. We don't feed them by giving them our attention and our curiosity, what's coming next? That's the only thing we do, and it's really a ceasing of doing. It's not an actual doing, it's just a ceasing of doing. Stop stirring the pot, and everything will settle down. Again, don't have an expectation that thoughts are going to cease. It's just the stories are going to cease as stories. The thoughts will arise, they'll pass away, they'll arise and pass away, but they won't link up into these dramas. Okay, so that's the second refinement, allowing thoughts to self-liberate. The third refinement is allowing desire and aversion to self-liberate. One of the things that we recognize is the primitive emotions of desire and aversion give rise under delusion to grasping and pushing away. That's what motivates and drives the story of I. 
And so if we can recognize when desire and aversion are arising and allow them to self-liberate just like we allow thought to self-liberate, well, they won't be a problem. They're a problem when desire arises and there's an identification, oh, that's my desire, and I'm only going to be happy if I get what that desire says I should get, and then I start going after it. It's amazing how much we're driven by these desire and aversions that we identify as belonging to me. You watch tomorrow morning. At the very get-go, you're going to be thinking about breakfast. Gee, I wonder what they're going to serve tomorrow. I wonder if I'll like it. I like that oatmeal today, but I don't know about that eight-grain cereal sometimes I've had here. You go in, and what do you do? You go look at the plaque that tells you what's being served right away. Oh, I don't think I'll like that. Oh, good, I like that one. All day long, it's just woven into our lives. This is why every tradition, every tradition warns us not to get entangled in desire and aversion. Here's what Rumi says. Someone asked, what is the way? I said, this way is to abandon desires. Here's uh, the Hindu Shankara. Those deluded beings who are tied to the objects they experience by the strong cord of desire so hard to break remain subject to birth and death. They travel upward and downward impelled by their own karma, that inescapable law. It's interesting, see, he links desire and aversion to karma and that is what creates karma. Action does not create karma. It's when we act on self-centered desires and self-centered aversions. That's what creates karma. Wang Po, the Zen master, says the same thing. Every one of the sentient beings bound to the wheel of alternating life and death is recreated from the karma of his own desires. Endlessly their hearts remain bound to the six states of existence, thereby involving them in all sorts of sorrow and pain. Interesting the way he puts it. He says they're recreated by their karma. We keep generating that sense of self out of this drama. So we have a a desire arises. Oh, we identify it's my desire. I have to have that. That's what's going to make me happy. That's creating this sense of self. It's recreating it. Every moment we do that, it comes back again. But the root energy of desire and aversion is just like thought. It's perfectly natural. It arises. And if you just leave it alone, it'll go. So here's what Sukhne Rinpoche, Tibetan master, says. There may be a disturbing emotion, but it can be dissolved without creating any karma. Not rejecting disturbing emotions, but simply allowing them to be self-liberated. So it's the same thing with thought. A little desire arises, an aversion arises, just let it self-liberate. So the fourth refinement is to surrender any effort to hold attention still. Now, earlier when I was giving you instructions for choiceless awareness, remember I said it's like a theater light. And when we're doing concentration practice, the theater light is turned into a spotlight and it's focused on one object on the stage. And then choiceless awareness, we, we expand it into a floodlight. And it illuminates the whole stage and everything on the stage. And there can be lots of activity on the stage, but the floodlight itself doesn't move. It just stays still. But now we're going to notice, after a while, if you do choiceless awareness, you may notice, let me put it that way, that you're making a very subtle effort to hold your attention still. Even though it's open, it's now spread out to the total field of consciousness and awareness, but this little effort to hold it still. And if you notice that effort, then you can drop the effort. And you allow awareness to go here, go there. So if we hear uh, the woo-woo, 
okay, attention moves there, it moves back, it's fluid, easy, open, but there's still no grasping. It's not going there to grasp it. It's not going there to think about it. It's just flowing. As long as we are still practicing detachment, neither grasping nor pushing away, it's fine. Attention can go where it wants. We don't have to even have that effort to hold it still. So if you notice that effort, let it go. I'll read you a um, description of this by Sokne Rinpoche of what it feels like. We need to be resting on nothing, like a bird soaring in the sky. There is space above. There is space below. There is space in front, behind, and to both sides. And the bird is not dwelling on anything whatsoever. It is soaring in midair. That is the way to sit. Do not lean forward into something. Do not lean back into something that you rest on. Do not settle down on your seat either. Be suspended in midair with space above, below, and on all sides. As a matter of fact, your very being is space. It is no different from space. So again, this is the art part of meditation. We have to feel our way into this. What is it be like to be totally effortless in this vast, limitless space of awareness? Not trying to stand still, but not going anywhere either. No goal, no destination, but fluid, open, easy. So, to sum up, if we make these four adjustments, drop the labeling and choiceless awareness, allow thoughts to self-liberate, allow desires and aversions to self-liberate, and surrender the effort to hold attention still. If we can do those things, then our choiceless awareness transforms into what we call spacious awareness. So when we talk about we're entering spacious awareness, it's entering choiceless awareness. It's no different except we make these final last adjustments. Okay? So, are we ready to practice this? Okay. Here we go. You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.